Memorandum 581-65. Address to Agent 3401. Please respond. If compromised, initiate Protocol 12B. May we tread lightly. Marnie stares at me as I turn my lek box and let the morning gospel fill the room. The sun is barely rising. The room is awash in a warm orange glow, the color of fallen leaves. When it's over and I'm disconnecting the lek box from my wave box, she looks at me and asks, What are cities? They're outposts that have a lot of people in them. Over the last two days, I've learned to just answer her questions and not to wonder why she asks them. She takes this in for a moment, then, while rolling up her bedroll, asks, Did the water really rise above them? I hesitate and tell her, That is what the gospel tells us. That is what Gara tells us, yes. And finally, as we are quietly getting dressed, the room now bathed in bright yellow sunlight, she turns to me and says, Who is Gara? When we ride up to the station, Colin is standing outside, looking agitated. You're here early. I slide off Moon's saddle and stand next to him while I fasten her reins to one of the posts. Kind of wish I hadn't been, honestly. Colin says and looks like he's holding in a breath. You ready to head to breakfast? I'm starving. I make sure the knot is tightened. I was just going to check on the prisoner before we go. About that. Colin trails off, looks at me, and bares his teeth. Oh no. I leave them both standing outside and run into the main office. Scully and Jacob are leaned over the body inside the holding cell. No, 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 guard, damn it! I holler, and it echoes inside the small cell. Scully and Jacob look at me, frightened by the noise. Move aside, I say briskly, and pull Jacob away from the body. Let me take a look. The man's skin is a strange reddish-purple, a strange juxtaposition to his green outfit. His mouth has froth around the edges. It's dried now. He must have crawled off the bench once he did it, Jacob says. The man in green has one arm outstretched towards the bars of the cell, like he changed his mind and was trying to call for help or trying to get out. But how did he do it? I try not to touch the body. Gara knows what the man took to end his life. I searched him yesterday, twice. Colin and Marnie come in from outside and stand with Scully and Jacob at the door to the cell. I look across the floor. There's nothing. But then I remember the small knife the prisoner had somehow produced out of thin air yesterday. He has a hidey spot. Jacob almost laughs. What? I don't answer him and stand, slowly circling the man splayed out on the floor. His collar is neat. His shirt is tucked in tightly. No room there. His pants have no pockets, and his socks. He's not wearing any socks, I realize. I take another step, so that I'm looking down at the man's feet, facing the others. A hidey spot. I crouch down and lower my head so that I can get a closer look at the man's shoes. One of the squares in the sole on his left boot is missing. Scully, can you grab the bulb and Jacob, get the lek box? I get down on my knees, 
still weary of touching the man. I'm now fairly sure that he's poisoned himself. Scully leans over, bulb in hand, while Jacob churns the leck box. You were right, Jacob says. He has a hidey spot inside those damn boots. If we assume that only the ones that are full squares are actually used for anything, he has exactly six of them in each one of his boots. I crouch down lower, eye level to the square grid. He tried to put the lid back on. Colin remarks and hands me a pen. The lid, square-shaped like the hole it was covering, is lying next to the man's ankle. Maybe whatever he took knocked him out before he could get to it. Definitely not touching those boots with my hands, I think, and poke at the small hole with the pen. The pen comes up against something with a gentle rustling sound, and with some maneuvering I'm able to move it around. Finally, a small square container, broken open, smaller than my pinky, falls out onto the prison cell floor. That must have been it. I gently tap at the square with the pen. Colin, can you grab a cloth bag so we can keep it as evidence? I then begin tapping at the other squares on the boots, but nothing happens. We'll have to get these off him and figure out how to open them up. I stand up and wipe my forehead. I didn't realize I was sweating. I'm happy he's dead, Marnie says cheerfully from across the room. Now people can stay in your cell without being afraid. Jacob and Colin, their hands wrapped thick in cloth bags, remove the man's boots. Then the two of them stash the body in the basement with the others. I can't say I'm enjoying how popular our morgue has become recently. Jacob grumbles as he and Colin come back up the stairs and into my office. I don't disagree. The sun is shining brightly as we ride towards the diner. Today, we are able to leave the horses just two streets away. We're running late, and it appears the warshippers are already heading home after their morning chants. I hope we still catch the farmers. We run towards the door. As we enter, I can see that Perry is going through his usual morning routine of trying to talk to Della. She, also, is going through her usual routine of trying to make it clear that she wants nothing to do with him. When the door clanks shut behind our group, Perry turns around and sees Marnie. His face pales. Great, they're still here. I glance over at Marnie, who's holding back from going over to Perry. Tell them I will leave this afternoon, if they can get me two more parcels. She sounds resolute. She looks like her mind is already on the ride back home. How many total did you steal anyway, just so I know how hard I have to bargain? I say to her under my breath, A total of eight. It's what Tydea can comfortably carry for a 14-day journey. Right. This is not going to be an easy sell. James! I sit down next to him in Perry's empty seat. Sheriff, he says. He looks at me and glances over at Marnie. She doesn't seem like she's much of a prisoner. We've decided to be friends instead, I shrug. And there is the fact that she helped us catch Clarissa's killer. Did she now? James says, evenly. He's a gentle man, but I can tell that he doesn't like where this is going. She sure did. He's dead now, poisoned himself, but that can't be helped. As I say this, two people breathe out from somewhere in the diner. 
Tension releases out of the people at the counter. Their backs sag. Abe and Della. But that's not why I'm here. I tried to pretend like I didn't notice the change that came over the room when I said that Clarissa's murderer had poisoned himself. It's possible everyone is simply relieved a bad man is dead, but something tells me it's something more. You're not. James recaptures my attention. Then why are you here? Well, for one, breakfast. I look over at my table, where the other four have sat down to their plates and motion to Kaylee to put mine down in my usual spot across from Colin. Marnie is still eyeing Perry, who has now shuffled away from Della and is standing behind me, waiting to get a seat back. In addition to breakfast, there is the business of our little berry thief. I go on. See, she has people up north. I lie. And she just needs two more parcels to get them through the winter. James starts to protest, but I raise my palms. And then she'll be gone. She will be leaving today, in fact. She can have the parcels, Perry says from behind my back. James, she gives me the willies and want her gone. James sighs. And she won't come back, he says, warning etched into his voice. We'll never see her again. She will never come back again. I promise and look over at the small woman. Her eyes trail from Perry to mine, and we smile at each other. No, she'll never come back again. Sadness sits like a rock in my chest. After we finish our breakfast, we ride with the farmers out to the barn, and James hands Marnie two parcels. She straps them to her saddle and smiles. I have to go into the woods to get the other parcels. She says and looks at Perry, who is tying up his horse and desperately trying to avoid her gaze by ducking behind the animal's neck. But then I'll be back to get you. She says to him and smiles. No, you won't. We can hear him grumble as he stalks off towards the barn, his head bowed low like the frozen dirt has secrets he must uncover. Thank you. She turns to me and then looks over to the others. Really, thank you. Maybe next year we will all try to make it to Canada together. Maybe, if what Sid said is true, we will all be able to get there. Wait, did she just say Sid? You know Sid? James looks at Marnie, flustered, but she just smiles at me again and rides off towards the woods on her giant horse. What did she say about Sid? James looks at me, his cheeks red. Nothing, she was talking about something else. James doesn't look like he's buying it. Right, he says, his pitch rising as he says it. Then he nods, raises his arms in defeat, and follows Perry into the barn. Perry is standing by the entrance a safe distance away, watching as Marnie heads towards the woods at spectacular speed. We're going to have to tell people that Sid is dead. Colin says quietly, as we watch James walk away from us. We need to find his family, wherever they are. Turning towards the woods, I scan the trees. Marnie has disappeared. Presuming that the man who killed Clarice is the same man that killed Sid, the danger should be over. Whatever reason he had for going after them, it died with him. I turn towards the others. Tomorrow, we'll tell everyone at the diner that Sid is dead. 
I slowly mount Moon. And then we'll tell them that we need help finding his family, that they're probably somewhere in the woods as well. We'll need all the help we can get if we want to search the entire forest. So, tomorrow, we tell them. We ride back towards the law office in silence. I look back over my shoulder several times, keeping an eye on the fields behind us, but I don't see Marnie ride back across. Gara knows of what tree or under what boulder she hid those parcels. Then the path ahead leads us back into the forest, and I can't see the fields at all anymore. The dead prisoner's boots are sitting on my desk where we left them. Time we take another crack at this. I gently pick up the left one, the one that has a single square missing. Colin clears the files off my desk, and then I lay the boot on its side so we can stare at its sole. I pull a knife out of my desk drawer and start cutting away at the tip of the boot. It's not cloth and not hide like ours. The knife goes in easily, even though our prodding and pulling earlier did nothing at all. Careful. Colin mutters and leans back, while Scully and Jacob lean in. I am. I say and keep cutting slowly. The sole of the boot starts to peel back like I'm cutting a fish in half. Halfway through, I see that my assumption was correct. Only the completely square chambers are filled. None of us move to touch what's inside. Finally, after what feels like forever, all six of them are opened up. The sole of the boot flips up and falls onto my desk. Gingerly, I lift the boot at the ankle and let the item spill out before us. Then I cut open the other boot and do the same. It's a strange little assortment. Little squares that contain tiny, colorful balls. Little bottles with liquid. Two tiny black boxes that have levers that make them reminiscent of relic boxes or wave boxes or something in between. What is all this stuff? Jacob pokes at one of the squares that contains a white ball inside of it. Potassium iodide? He reads off the tiny paper that covers the back of the square. Should we try it out? This one just says Protocol 12B. Scully says and kneels down beside the desk while holding the little square in place with a pen. It doesn't have a little ball in it, but a little green rectangle with numbers on it. I don't think we should try any of them. For all we know, one of these is what he took last night. I crouch down in front of one of the small black boxes and poke at one of its bubble-shaped protrusions. As I push down, the room is lit up. The tiny box expends something akin to lightning right into my face. For a second, I'm blinded and blank furiously, a blue light in my vision like I've been looking at the sun for too long. Sheriff, are you all right? Scully is standing in front of me, grabbing me, and I blink again. Yeah, it's wearing off. I rub my face with both hands. The round orb is already growing fainter when I close my eyes. What in Gara's name was that? Jacob stares down at the tiny black box. All of them have stopped poking at the items with their pens. We stare down at the table, at the small black box. It's fine, I say, deciding so. 
But, just as I do, the small box gives off a strange beeping sound. A green light lights up on its little roof, and then there is a long, drawn-out beep, followed by several smaller ones, that start to bleed into each other, making one drawn-out noise. What is it doing? Colin has moved to the door, ready to run. The box stops humming. Silence. And then, for some reason I think to myself that the little contraption looks proud of itself somehow. That was really strange, Scully says and squints. Yeah, let's not touch that one again until we know what it does. I grab a small cloth bag from the drawer and gently tap the black box over the edge of the desk and into it, then seal it shut. Maybe we should start putting these away. I hand everyone bags and we start logging the items. In addition to the potassium iodide, the mystery ball for whatever 12B is, we also find a little bottle containing something called luminol, another two of the square little knives the prisoner used to cut the rope, and several little squares labeled with isoniazid and two labeled doxycycline. None of us have ever heard of any of it. Finally, as I tap a tiny black flat square with a shiny surface into a bag, it gives off a strange red light just as it plops in. Across the bottom it reads in green letters, Error. No identity. Try again. I stop for a moment. It's like the man's hand, glowing red, not flashing like the other little box, but glowing warmly. Without thinking, I pull it back out of the bag, Colin gasps as he sees me holding it, and Scully and Jacob look at me like I've gone crazy. As I'm holding it between my thumb and forefinger, the red light is released again. Harper Rose, the green letters flash across the bottom, Sheriff of Stalford Outpost, threat level, minimal. It knows my name. I mutter and throw it back into the bag like it bit me. It knows who I am. Scully reaches for the bag, but I hide it behind my back. No one else touches this. I give a quick glance into the bag. A green light on its side is flicking on and off, but I throw it into the box with everything else and don't mention it. Now what? Scully looks around the office. With its stuff put away and no prisoners left in the cell, it's strangely quiet. Now we take the rest of the day off, I say, and lean my head towards my shoulder, stretching my neck. Tomorrow we'll have a long day of coordinating the search for Sid's family. While everyone shuffles outside and gets on their horses, I take the box of evidence we gathered from the boots and, after taking one last look and listening for any more beeps, I close it up and lock it into the evidence closet. When I get home, I put the water on to boil up back before heading over to Prudence's hut. Rita, faithful to her duty as ever, is sitting beside her on the bed, telling her of some sort of gossip she heard earlier that week. Prudence, dozing with heavy lids, seems to not really be following any of it. But her eyes shoot open as I step over the threshold. Talia, she says, and my heart falls into my stomach. I can't move. Rita stands, slowly, sensing something is very, very wrong. I still can't move. 
She moves across the room and touches my arm. When I don't respond, she whispers into my ear to come out into the hallway with me and gently pulls me along. Talia? She asks gently and closes the door behind us. Prudence hasn't said anything else, not even as we left the room. My mother. I look at the ground. I don't have to say anything else. Do you look alike? Rita asks. A memory of my mother flashes through my head. She's tall and has light hair, but I can't make out much else. I don't know. I guess so. My voice sounds far away. I was too young to really know what my mother looked like. Blurry faces cloud my memory. Tall, light hair, a nose, eyes. Blurred, blurred, blurred. I slowly shake my head. I told you she gets confused. Rita says and gently rubs my elbow. Her kindness makes me want to choke down a sob. Sorry. I whisper. I just haven't heard her name in so long. It's just... I gesture, trying to express the aching in my chest. Rita smiles weakly. I would tell you to wait for a better day to see her. Her voice is soft like spring grass under your bare feet. But her time is running out. You should see her as much as you can now. I nod, and I'm not sure I'm still breathing. I push past Rita and into the bedroom. Prudence looks up and smiles at me. She doesn't say anything. I can hear Rita walk down the hallway and go at back to check on the boiling water. Hi, Prudence. I say and lie down next to her on the bed. I haven't done this since I was little. My feet stretch out past hers under the covers. Hi, Talia. She says without hesitation. I haven't seen you in a few days. I got worried you'd already left. You have to tell me when it's time. My breath hitches in my throat. Time for what? Your plan, of course. Are you still going to do it? Try to find the other place? I'm not so sure anymore. It's impossible to tell if Prudence is simply confused, gripped by fever, or if it's making her give away secrets of the past. It feels gross, like I'm invading her mind without asking. Maybe I should leave, I think. But Rita said her time was slipping, and I stay on the bed. I'm not so sure you should either. Prudence answers me and lets her hand rest onto my shoulder. But you seemed so set on it, I figured you had already gone. And I'd prefer you tell me in advance. I've never taken care of a child before, you know that. I close my eyes. Did Prudence know my mother was leaving? Was my being dumped in front of her hut planned? Where should I go first? It feels wrong, but I have to know. Tread lightly, Harper. Well, probably the forbidden zone, don't you think? At this, Prudence laughs to herself, quietly, a rasping sound grating along with it in her chest. I try not to look down at the cloth clasped in between her hands, more red than white. But after that, how would I know? You have the map, not me. 
I don't know of any map, and move on. So you're okay with taking care of Harper, then? Oh, sure. The smile on Prudence's face rings gently in her voice. I love that little girl, you know that. It's very kind of you to do that, I tell her. To take care of her, even though she isn't yours. She kind of is mine, though, isn't she? Prudence sounds like she's trailing off. Sleep makes her head heavy in the nape of my neck. Yes, I tell her. She really is. Soon, Prudence starts to snore gently, the same rasping in her chest as she breathes, her mouth slightly open. Without waking her, I guide her head down to the pillow and walk into the kitchen. Rita is sitting at the table with a hot brew steaming out of a mug. Is she asleep? She asks as I walk in. Yes, she's asleep. I hesitate before walking back out into the hall. How much should I believe? I ask Rita. She looks at me for a moment before she understands. The fever does play tricks, she says, sipping from her mug. So if I were you, I would believe only what you want to believe. No need to drive yourself crazy. Once they get to this stage, they see all kinds of strange things that aren't really there. Some of it is real. Some of it is completely made up. I thank Rita and go back to my own hut. Then I tear the place apart, looking for my mother's map.